0: morning. Uh, We are studying the book of Obadiah. So if you'll find Obadiah this morning, we are at verses 15 through 18. And as you're turning there, um, our subject for the study this morning uh, comes from one of the verses we're going to look at, which is verse number 15. Our subject is, As thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. As thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. Of course, by the time we've arrived at verse 15 of this particular uh, book, uh, we have covered a lot of ground already. We've looked um, at how Obadiah, as God's prophet, has been announcing the coming judgment that is going to be poured out upon the Edomites because of their their attitude and their actions towards the nation of Israel. And so, uh, with the nation of Israel, the edomites were going to suffer at the hands of god but we also need to keep in mind that part of what's going on in the book of obadiah is that god's people the jews are also under the chastening hand of god so we've got these events that are all merging together we've got god's chastening hand that's upon the uh the israelites and then we have god's wrath being poured out upon the edomites so this is not a declaration of innocency to Israel. Israel is not kind of standing in the shadows and they're guilty of nothing. Uh, remember, uh, Israel has been numerous times, especially in the Old Testament, guilty of rebellion against the very clear statutes and commandments of God. So Israel is not in the clear here, if I can use that expression. But the primary emphasis of this very short book of Obadiah has to do with the wrath that is going to be poured out upon the Edomites. Now, the first 14 verses, we have exhaustively looked at all the different uh, judgments, the consequences that were going to be poured out. And as the last section of this book opens, verses 15 through 21, we are primarily dealing with two subjects, the day of the Lord, or the day of Jehovah, and Israel's salvation. All right, it's the day of the Lord, or the day of Jehovah and Israel's salvation. You'll notice with me in verse 15, it says, for the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen. As thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. Thy reward shall return upon thine own head. For as ye have drunk upon my holy mountain, so shall all the heathen drink continually. Yea, they shall drink and they shall swallow down and they shall be as though they had not been. But upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness, and the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. Now you'll notice here as we look at this day of the Lord reference, uh, we are looking at the reality of the judgment that is going to take place, of course, on Edom. But it's this very first expression here, for the day of the Lord is near. Uh, Imagine with me for a moment that when when Obadiah spoke these words, he was speaking about something in in its proximity to when it's going to happen. Uh, We don't know exactly the timing of when Obadiah penned these words. But what we do know is we know and we see very clearly the warning that's being placed here, that the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen. We have to remember when we see the Lord and the word using the word near, uh, we have to remember that God is operating on His own sense of sovereign, perfect time. We often put near in a category so to try to determine what does that mean. When He says near, are we talking months? Are we talking years? Are we talking hours? Are we talking minutes? The Bible throughout throughout its entirety uses the terminology about God being near or the Lord being near. And one of the humbling things about who God is, is to remember that God's timing is not dependent upon our sense of time. So our definition of nearness is does not necessarily line up with God's nearness. Even when God makes reference to the seasons, it's not for you to know the seasons. Our, our human mind immediately runs to the four seasons, and we think about fall, winter, spring, and summer, and we think it's not for you to know the seasons, he says. Well, he doesn't mean the seasons as we know them. He's talking about periods of time. We operate in the world by understanding that the day of the Lord or the day of Christ's return is very near. And that has been true and that will continue to be true. That's why even in Paul's day and prior to the Apostle Paul's day, with them making the proclamation that the day the Lord's coming is near, it was in fact near and it's near today. So there is a great emphasis that's being placed here. So Obadiah is putting this Situation to where he's saying this particular event, this day is coming. Now, another thing we need to keep in mind is when you see the word day with reference to the Lord's nearness, it doesn't mean that it's necessarily a 24-hour day that all of this is going to take place. We often look at the day of the Lord and we think, okay, the day of the Lord means it's going to happen on one calendar day. The day of the Lord can encompass a series of days. It can encompass a series of events that all are precursors or actually the event itself. But the emphasis Obadiah is trying to convey is the reality that this day of the Lord is near and it's near upon all the heathen. It is to rise up within them a level of fear. Now, Jeremiah used similar language when he spoke about the punishment that was going to come upon the Edomites. So let's hold our place in Obadiah, and I want you to see Jeremiah's words on this. And it's Jeremiah chapter 49, and this is in a section that begins in verse 7, and we're just going to read verses 7 through 12. But Jeremiah is speaking specifically God's message against Edom. And we'll see how clear this is. Jeremiah 49, verse 7: Concerning Edom, thus saith the Lord, saith the Lord of hosts, is wisdom no more in Teman? Is counsel perished from the prudent? Is their wisdom vanished? Now let's stop there and remember that the Edomites, their wise men, were taken from them. So remember, Obadiah spoke about this: that the wise men would be taken. Their ability to counsel, their ability to know even what's right and what's wrong. Flee ye, turn back, dwell deep, O inhabitants of Dedan. For I will bring the calamity of Esau upon him the time that I will visit him. Now remember, the Edomites were direct descendants of Esau. We know the conflict between Jacob and Esau. So the Edomites were out of the line of Esau. So that's why you see the reference to Edom and also Esau. If grape gatherers, this sounds familiar, we talked about the grape gatherers, come to thee, would they not leave some gleaning grapes? If thieves by night, they will destroy till they have, had, they have enough. But I have made Esau bare. I have uncovered his secret places, and he shall not be able to hide himself. His seed is spoiled, and his brethren and his neighbors, and he is not. Leave thy fatherless children, I will preserve them alive, and let thy widows trust in me. For thus saith the Lord, Behold, they whose judgment was not to drink of the cup have assuredly drunken, and art thou he that shall altogether go unpunished. Thou shalt not go unpunished, but thou shalt surely drink of it. Now this is going to go right in line with what we're going to see in verse 16 about this, this imagery of drink and how the Edomites are going to assume and make some assumptions about their partaking of this, thinking that they are drinking of the cup of God's goodness, when in fact they are drinking of the cup of God's wrath. Okay, so there's, there's really some imagery going on here that we need to be very much aware of. So you'll notice that as Edom's punishment is announced back in Obadiah, It says, as thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. This goes all the way back to that that statement we made at the opening of this series that what goes around comes around or poetic justice as you have done to someone else, this is now in fact going to be done unto you. So why is God singling out these Edomites? Uh, If we were to go through scripture and find out all the enemies of God and just name a few, uh, we could talk about the Assyrians. We could talk about the Chaldeans. Uh, the Chaldeans, uh, in a sense, would have a greater uh, reason for why they attacked Israel, uh, but they still were—they were still tried for their crimes against Israel. The Edomites, though, remember, they were kindred. Jacob and Esau were brothers the vengeance that God is pouring out on Edom as the descendants of Esau is greater because they were kindred. And there is a seriousness to this matter that there are other nations that it could have been said about that they have, they have been evil towards Israel, but the words are simply explained in a manner here that makes us, take, it makes us sit up and take notice that God is bringing something upon not just the Edomites, but he's bringing something upon all heathen nations. So he says there is going to be a change. Now remember, uh, the Lord is the ultimate judge of the earth. And because we know that God is ultimately the judge of the earth, God is announcing that even the Edomites, this powerful group who lived in the rock city, we talked about that, even they must give an account to God. Folks, there is no nation upon this world. There's no nation that's ever been. There's no city. There's no government. There's no anything that's ever existed that will not give an account to God. No matter what that nation believes, no matter what that nation thinks, it may believe it's the most powerful nation that's ever lived, and yet it must give account to God, and it will fall under the subjection of the wrath of God. So God has resolved here, Notice he doesn't just say the day of the Lord is near upon the Edomites. He says, no, the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen. Thy reward shall return upon thine own head. So we see clearly that the day of the Lord is near or the day of of Jehovah. We don't know for certain which particular day that Obadiah was talking about. Uh, it's not a, it's, a, it's a, not a matter of our uh, investigation this morning, honestly, to know exactly what he's talking about, but there is this continual understanding that even in our day and age today, the day of the Lord is near. We don't know the hour, we don't know the season, we don't know the circumstances of exactly when it's going to be, but there is coming a day when that God's wrath will be fully poured out upon all the heathen nations of this world." Now you and I understand that one of the the blessings of being one of God's children is actually being under his chastening hand. When God corrects us, he does it, why? Because he loves us. Israel was under the chastening hand of God even in their full-fledged rebellion, he loved his people. But understand that they are not exempt from the consequences of their rebellion. And God's people, we need to get that in our mind too. We are not exempt from consequences just because we are children of God. Children of God are still subjected to the chastening hand. Now, we might try to lessen this and say, well, at least I'm not subject to the full wrath of God. See, for a child of God, we ought to be concerned about even the chastening hand of God. We rejoice in the fact that we're our hand, that he chastens us because we know that that's evidence of his love for us. But understand something. Do we live, by way of an application this morning, do we live as if the day of the Lord is actually near? Not cliched, but do we actually live now as if the day of the Lord is near or the day of the Lord's return? So Obadiah draws this conclusion, which is our subject. As thou hast done, so shall it be done to thee there is a comparison now that we see between the chastisement of the chosen people, Israel, and the punishment which they inflicted. Okay, so the Edomites were guilty. What what Edom begins to believe is they start to see that the children of Israel or the children of Abraham are now under the punishment or the chastening hand of God, and they start to put things together and start to say, well, they're probably being punished because they despise their own prophets. They despise their own people. They, they could look from a distance and see that the nation of Israel was an immoral and in some cases a perverse nation. So, folks, and again, it's this warning that we, we kind of look with our own sense of spiritual pride and we look at someone else and we look at another nation and we say, boy, they've really, they have really fallen to the lowest of low. Yet, Edom's making a very grand mistake. The mistake is they're believing that God is so busy and occupied with Israel that they think that they are absolved from any sort of judgment. So they believe they're exempted from punishment. So when the day of Jehovah is mentioned here, or the day of the Lord is mentioned, we understand that there is a chastisement of Israel. There's a chastisement of Judah specifically going on here. But we also know that he is the judge of all nations. There is no one, there is no one who will escape the ultimate punishment of God. Every man, every woman will give an account of their actions. Again, it reads us into remembering, does God see and know everything that's going on in this world? Every man is going to give an account. Every individual is going to render unto God what is due thy reward shall return upon thine head. Obadiah continues in his conclusion here, and he says, as as you have done, it'll be done to you. In other words, don't think, Edom, that you're going to go unpunished for having going against your brother Jacob. Remember, folks, we mentioned this, I think, in the very first week. If we did not establish the connection between Jacob and Esau, this stuff about the Edomites doesn't make any sense. The connection to Esau is the key to what's happening to Edom. If this was just a random nation of people and we just said, why is God being uh, so uh, vengeful against Edom? Well, it's very much right there. Your reward shall return upon thine own head. What you've done unto your brother Jacob will return unto you. It was God's purpose to give an example of his severity. But also to remind them of the abuse of how long-suffering and how forbearing he had been with them. They abused that privilege. You know, oftentimes we justify our actions by saying, Well, there's plenty of time. I'll get things right. Uh, there's, many a, there's many a person who has known that they're in known sin against God, and they just simply say, there's plenty of days for me to get right with God. There's plenty of time for me to get right with God. I'll get right with God when the situation's better, when my circumstances are right. And yet, God is long-suffering. God is forbearing. He is merciful. He's gracious. But there is a time when that will, in its, in its entirety, for those who are outside the body of Christ, comes to a complete and utter end. And it is not, as some of the modern theology wants to teach us, that you'll get this second chance if you miss the first one. Which is a deadly heresy. That if I'm wrong, I'll get right after I see I'm wrong. There's a lot of, of quote-unquote people living that way right now. They've been taught by a church somewhere. Listen, there's this great period of time. Don't worry, when the Lord comes again, now you'll know everything is right. And when you quote-unquote see people disappear from off the planet, then you'll know, okay, now I need to run to God. Folks, there's so many things wrong with that. We don't even have the time today to discuss that. But I want you to understand that when he talks about the day of the Lord being near, he's not talking about this just this subtle thing. He's talking about an ending, an ending to this long-suffering, an ending to this this, uh, mercy that's being extended. So notice he's not using this word reward in a positive sense. He's using the word reward in the negative sense, which tells us that this reward is the wrath of God. So your reward is going to be based upon what you've done to others. So the Edomites are being told, your reward will be what you have done. It will come upon your own head. It's the idea here, it's it's to recoil. It's to return. Whatever you've done, this is what will be done. We know the passage in Matthew 7-2, which our Lord spoke. He said, For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. That phrase that Jesus uses in Matthew 7-2, it's worthy of being noticed and it's worthy of taking account. When God, when God leaves the innocent to the will of the ungodly, okay, they think they can do whatever they want and be immune. Now I hope this isn't our attitude this morning, but we live in a world of people who believe that they are immune from the wrath of God. Yet Romans tells us they're without excuse, because when they knew not, when they knew God. that's what Romans says, when they knew God, they glorified him not. The atheist uses the term "atheist" to hide behind his excuse. An atheist is not really an atheist. An atheist is without excuse. They know God and they refuse to acknowledge God and they think they're immune. That's why nothing should shock us when we see the direction that our world is going. When you see the sin that you think it it can't get any deeper, it gets deeper. There is a true belief that they believe they're immune from God's judgment, let alone believe that the day of the Lord is coming Peter wrote about that. Where is the promise of his coming? People have been hearing about the promise of his coming for years and years and years. Where is he? There are quote unquote Christians who gave up and said, you know what? I've been waiting on the Lord for 30 years. He never came. So I'm done with Christianity. I would suggest to you that they were never in. They were never a believer to begin with. Because to simply just say, well, the promise of his coming, didn't come, it didn't come about, so he must not really be true. Don't fool yourself into believing that that was a believer. Listen, I believe in the return of Christ just as much this moment as I ever have in my entire life. Just because it hasn't happened yet doesn't mean that he's not still coming. And it doesn't mean that judgment's not still coming. God is not, God is not confused by what's going on in the world. He's not, he's not confused by why sin is running rampant he's not he's not out of control and no one's immune the edomites believed in their immunity and even the lord as he taught in the book of matthew people think that you can get away with whatever you want to get away with we become indifferent we become apathetic Again, notice again what Obadiah is saying. There's a reward prepared for everyone, and that reward is prepared based upon the cruelty that they exercised. It will be returned upon their own heads. So verse 16 really talks about God's retribution. We're told scripturally that vengeance is not ours. Revenge is not our, it's not our place. The Edomites, notice it says there in verse 16, for as ye have drunk upon my holy mountain, this goes back to the reference Jeremiah made, so shall all the heathen drink continually. Yea, they shall drink and they shall swallow down and they shall be as though they had not been. The Edomites in and themselves had been the beneficiaries, the recipients of God's goodness. You realize even the most wicked nation on this earth has been a recipient of God's goodness. They have received the blessings of God. They have, in fact, been drinking from His holy mountain, and yet they give Him no glory. They give Him no credit. They don't take time to thank Him. But even the unbelieving farmer, as we use as an illustration often, the unbelieving farmer who has that banner crop has that at the hands of God, not because he's a good farmer, but because God has given him that. God shows grace even to those who are not in his family. So this imagery that we have here of drinking from the holy mountain, all the nations will be given to drink from the cup of God's wrath. There's a couple of references I'd encourage you to read on your own. Jeremiah 25, Lamentations 4, Psalm 60. Job 21 and Revelation 14 are five, are five passages that deal specifically about drinking the cup of God's wrath. Notice how, how long this will go. So shall all the heathen drink continually. Something that is continually means it does, it's implied that there's no ending to it. You realize that when we talk about the wrath of God eternally speaking... The wrath of God does not have an ending. Hell does not have an ending. There, there is not a point in time when the cup of God's wrath just suddenly stops. Now, this, folks, these are humbling thoughts for the believer and the non-believer alike. Because if you're a believer and that doesn't stop you in your tracks and humble you to the mercy and grace and love that's been extended to you and put you in a posture of thanksgiving for God, nothing will. Because the reality is, as you and I are going to feast continually upon the goodness of God, those who are in Christ. That also has no ending. Aren't you glad that there is not this appointed time that you die and, and, or the Lord returns and you go and that's only going to continue for a few years? It's eternally. We are going to continually feast on the goodness of God and there's aspects of God you and I don't even understand yet that we're going to see clearly. As much as I want to fully understand who God is today, I don't fully see it all because there's still a bit of a veil. But I do know this, that the cup of God's wrath is a continual cup and that cup will continue. Notice he says, they shall drink and they shall swallow down. Again, the imagery is striking. It's striking. And, and, And again, think about it. They shall drink. The imagery put into the mouth. But it's a whole other step to actually swallow and take it down. The imagery... Is striking. This is what's appointed for the heathen. This is what's appointed for specifically here the Edomites. They will continually without end receive and experience God's wrath until they finally cease to exist as nations. So not only are they going to cease to exist as a nation, they're going to eternally bear the consequences of that wrath. Folks, if if you're interested in history at all, go over history and find out how many nations that used to be. Find out how many countries used to be. And don't don't get caught up in the secondary cause. Don't get caught up in, well, yeah, that nation's gone because this nation invaded it. You know throughout Scripture God used wicked nations to judge other wicked nations and to bring them down. So when you see a wicked nation or a wicked ruler rise up and take down another wicked nation, don't don't think for a moment that 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 nation or that ruler is not under the hand of God. These things, folks, are not random. This This is not a randomness in our world that we just sit back and we say, has God utterly lost control? Why is he allowing this? Why am, I, why am I as a parent and a grandparent having to worry about my children's future? Why am I having to worry about the things they're being exposed to? It's easy to say, hasn't God lost some sort of control? He hasn't. The Roman Empire at one time thought it was an undefeatable empire. And at one time, the most feared place for you to fall under the condemnation of was the Roman Empire. When Paul used that terminology in Romans chapter 8 about there is no, no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus, I'm loosely paraphrasing that, he was also had in mind to what it meant to be under the condemnation of the Roman government. Because the power of the Roman government was such that believers were under the very foot of the Roman government. Everything that they did was dependent upon what the Roman government did. Now, of course, the greater meaning is we could be under condemnation here on this earth. Matter of fact, this nation, it can't happen. Every believer in this nation of the United States could be under the condemnation of the United States government. There could be legislation enacted to say, listen, if you refuse to renounce your Christianity, you are under the condemnation of the United States government. But I'm going to tell you what, you could be under the condemnation of a government that's here on earth, but we also know that according to the promises of God, every wicked nation will be brought down. But my condemnation that keeps me out of the glory of Jesus Christ can never be taken away. Folks, my hope is not in these hundred years if I get them here. My hope is not in what happens to me in the next ten years. My hope is not even with what happens in the next day. My hope is in the day of the Lord and the day that Christ is coming again and things are going to be set right. Because it's not going to be just a one day time. Oh, now we're all good. This is a continual. Obadiah proceeds one step further and he's saying that God's going to revenge all the wrongs that have been done to his people. The declaration, simply, all the nations on the day of Jehovah, this is near, as you have done, God is going to repay. God has promised and purposed, even in his own sovereign plan, to defend his own. Again, people bring up questions about, if God's always a defender of his own, why does he allow believers to be martyred? Why is it in our nation, or in our world today, Christians are being martyred at a much higher clip than at any other time in history. If God is so good, why is he letting these people suffer at the hands of wicked people? Well, I can tell you this, God's purposes are being accomplished. And most every martyr who has stepped out into eternity has stepped out with the praise of God on their lips. Sometimes, I'll be honest with you, I'll be as transparent with you as I can, I read the accounts and I read the stories of these persecuted and some that have died, and I ask myself the question, if that was me, would I have praised God as they did unto me what they did unto them? See, don't just read about the martyrs and read about those as some kind of a fictional story. We're talking about something that people actually stepped out into eternity because they refused to renounce their stance. Weak believers say God must not have been good on that day. God's always good. If God is always good, God's always good, even in his wrath. You know, one of the greatest indictments and the greatest charge against God is today is that God is not good. You know why all these agendas don't want anything to do with God? Because they say God is not good because God's not letting them do or God won't approve rather of what they want to do. And they know I'm sinning against God. I'm sinning against the very God who I know I'm going to claim atheism because that's my excuse. But I know there's a God because the Bible says God has put that within every individual to know there's a God. An atheist is an atheist by choice. Now, he may not know all there is to come to saving faith. And we understand that the salvation is a work of the Lord. But if someone says, I've never, I don't know what God is. No, everyone has a sense of who God is. And yet, these are people, the Edomites, who clearly knew who God was. They knew who God was. They stood back. They watched as Israel was plundered, they, they applauded approvingly as they, were, as they were being attacked by these other nations. And he says, now you will drink. Instead of my blessings, you're now going to drink my wrath. It will drink and this will consume you. Notice what it says. They shall be as though they had not been. The idea there is consumption. To be completely wasted away. And then I love the next verse, and the the first word especially, but. But the mount, but upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance. There shall be holiness, and the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. The word but, a small word, but that verse indicates a strong contradiction between what has been said And what is now being said. That's true. That's biblical interpretation. That's why I've said a lot of times, the most theological strong word are not sometimes those real big words. They're words that indicate a change or a tense or a tone difference. That word, similar to nevertheless, has the same power behind it that says, here is all these things that's going to happen, but I want you to know that there's deliverance. And that deliverance is upon Mount Zion. That very mountain that the Edomites drank from is the very same mountain in which deliverance comes from. The same God of wrath, get this, the same God of wrath is the same God who gives deliverance. Isn't it amazing that there's not one God of wrath and then one God of deliverance and you just serve whichever God you're in? The same God who's pouring out wrath, who's always good, is the same God who's also the God of deliverance. So after the judgment on Edom and the nations that possess the same spirit, we talked about the having the spirit of Edom a couple weeks ago with respect to God's people. Okay, now this is not just a reference to Israel. Okay, there's again this is for another day, but there's this there's this idea in in some Christian circles. That when you see phrases like this, that this is just promising protection to the nation of Israel, instead of understanding that even God in this day had had in mind the church, He had in mind the entirety of those who are believers. Folks, my deliverance is found upon Mount Zion. My deliverance is found in that same God who at one time was pronouncing His wrath against me. That same God who once says you are condemned. The same God who's the giver of wrath is the same God through the Holy Spirit who opened my eyes to be able to see the truth. One of the great mysteries of God. The same God who pours out wrath is the same God who must open your eyes, and it's the same God where your deliverance is found. Some religions and some churches would have you to believe there's three different things going on here you've got the God of wrath, and then you've got you. And God's just waiting for you to come around. <laughs> you better thank the Lord intentionally today that God didn't wait around for you to realize your own condemnation and come on your own volition because you would never come. So I'm, I'm considering myself pretty spiritually smart and astute. I would have come to God not without Him drawing you first and not without Him opening your eyes. You wouldn't. That's not offensive, that's glorious, because now I can, I, can, I can actually say, where did my salvation come from? It came from the Lord, not from me. It came from the Lord. This salvation, this prophecy with respect to God's people, the Israelites in context here, of course there is the establishment of the entire kingdom of God. Now we know that salvation is of the Lord. We also know biblically speaking that this is not a reference that all of Israel, regardless of their spiritual condition, will be saved. I'm afraid we have the idea, and I don't know how far deep the tentacles of this run, but some have the idea that God is just going to save every person who's associated with Israel. For the most part today, Israel is a Christ-rejecting nation. I'm just speaking facts to you today. Okay? And I I know we hear a lot of things. Standing with Israel. I I understand all that. But I want you to understand something also. Obadiah was never talking about the full deliverance of everybody who associates with the Jew, with the Israelite, or the people of Judah, whatever the case was. It's not without it. There is an exception here. They must be in Christ, they must be in God. If Israel, for example, was to completely, and again, I don't know if this has happened in the sense that we would recognize it, was to completely come out and on their headline say, we as Israel say, we are 100% Christ rejectors." How would we respond to that? Would we say, well, they're God's chosen people, so we need to go along with their Christ rejection. No, we wouldn't treat any differently than if it was the Edomites. Now again, does God have a special plan, a special purpose for Israel? Yes. But don't lose sight of this. God also has a special plan for his church. And sometimes we get these things convoluted and we've, we, 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 miss, we misinterpret what Paul was teaching about being grafted in and being Jews and Gentiles alike. Our entire study in the book of Ephesians, we've been talking about how Jews and Gentiles were worshiping together in the church. The Gentiles didn't become Jews. And the Jews didn't become Gentiles. But they had one thing in common, Jesus Christ. There is no... Jew or Gentile when it comes to... He doesn't mean that you're not still a Jew and you're not still a Gentile. He just said there's not one God of the Jews and one God of the Gentiles. There's one Lord. My prayer is that the whole nation of Israel comes to repentance. But that's the same prayer I pray for this nation. It's for another day. We're still busy. We're still busy as churches sending missionaries all over this world. And I'm telling you, folks, the United States of America is the biggest mission field in the world. You say, no, it's not. It's those, it's those really wicked nations. Folks, are you, are, I'm not trying to be crude, but are you paying attention? Are you, are you paying attention? I'm not saying it's not important. But if you think that we are the picture of what godly, Christ-centered society nation supposed to look like, We are far, far from it. And that doesn't, it doesn't mean because it's printed on your money and God we trust that you actually believe in that God. Take away America's reserves financially, see if they still trust in God. That's harsh words, but that's reality. That ain't God we trust on that dollar bill, yeah because I'm being provided for. I got money. What if you don't have any money? Do you still trust in that God? You see, it's not a matter of just an acknowledgement of God. You go over and, and talk, to, talk to a Jew today. They fully believe in God. But they do not believe, for the most part, that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Are they outside the body of Christ? If they don't believe that Christ is the Messiah? Are they outside the body of believers? According to Scripture, they are. And that's true for any other person that lives, Jew, Gentile, Greek, whatever you want to say, without deliverance that comes from God. Should the Edomites, should the Edomites suffer the wrath of God? Obadiah makes this very clear. He says in Mount Zion there is deliverance. Remember, the Edomites were not completely ignorant of everything that God was and everything God had done. But God is promising that there is an escape. There is an escape not in Mount Zion, but an escape upon Mount Zion. There is deliverance, but there's also holiness. And the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. Imagine this, we're going to talk about this during our worship service, when we consider the subject about how much Christ loved the church. Christ loved the church so much that he chastises and corrects those in which he loves. God's purpose in wounding Israel was to correct them. I don't know everything God does to correct his people, I have never, I've never even dared to get in that arena to call, that's God's judgment, that's God, that's God, this is happening to your family or your family or your family because you did this. I, that's not our place. But I do understand that if you're in Christ and there's correction going on, he's doing it because he loves you. He's doing it to bring us back to a place of true trust. I don't know, maybe even our own nation is in that moment of... Where are we going to flee for our hope? Where are we going to flee for our deliverance? Remember, Israel was also fully aware of the covenants. They were aware of the promises. They were aware of the restoration. Obadiah promises. Look what it says. And the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. That is a reference back to the possessions of the Edomites. Those... Edomites, the punishment which the Lord chastises his people for their sins is for a time. And wherever God inflicts the wounds upon his church, remember, God's people will never wholly be lost. Whatever happens in this life, God's people will never be wholly lost. Let's just finish with this thought as we think about this Mount Zion and holiness God being mindful of His covenant. Remember, Zion was the place where God initially determined that all worship of Him was to take place. When Jesus was having the conversation with the woman at the well, and He makes the statement that it will no longer worship, will not be just limited to Mount Zion. It will worship now in spirit and in truth. Obadiah is talking about here that this, this Mount Zion was not going to be limited to just a location, but it was going to be limited to a person. This would have been very foreign had you mentioned this, had Obadiah wrote about worshiping in spirit and in truth. God's people would not have been able to even have a clue about what he was talking about. Because at that time, worship was located in a place. It's an amazing thing to me that you and I coming to this place today is not the only place we can worship. And we're not required to come here just to worship. We come here willingly and we come here voluntarily because of what God has done for us. We come with the idea that God has manifested his grace in such a manner towards us that had it not been for his electing grace, had it not been for his deliverance, we would find no safety, we'd find no deliverance. We'd find nowhere, and yet we have this wonderful thing that even the Old Testament saint didn't understand, the possession of the Spirit. When Jesus tells that woman at the well that you must worship me and those true worshipers must worship me in spirit and in truth, the Holy Spirit is what he was referring to. You and I worship today in unity because of the Spirit of God. The house of Jacob will again possess his own possessions, that whatever God has given them as a heritage, as the children of Abraham, he will restore it to them. They would return from exile. But Obadiah's real meaning here is that when the children of Israel would return from exile, God would restore them to their ancient country, that they would possess whatever he had promised to their father Abraham. I love the idea of restoration. This is kind of a little bit of a rabbit trail, but I love the idea of restoration because it's biblical. That wandering saint that wanders outside the fold and wanders outside the things of God. I love when God restores them. I don't pray for their exile. I pray for their restoration. Because that restoration, there is a picture of the beauty of God. We are all pictures of grace. We are all pictures of a marvelous restoration. Because if we could truly see what we were before Christ, it would be too horrible to even look upon. And even after Christ has come to us, we are still sinners saved by grace who still have wicked motives, wicked desires, wicked attitudes that every day we ought to be brought to repentance saying, God, forgive me for being a wicked sinner and sinning against your grace. Folks, today, this might be anything more than to just simply understand that when he comes, there is going to be blessing and there's going to be curse. Spurgeon put it this way, and I love this quote. I'm I'm humbled by it, but I love the quote the way he puts it. He says, "When, When Christ comes, there will surely be a curse to the left hand as a blessing to the right, and both will be everlasting. Hell is as deep as heaven is high, for God who delights in mercy also hates iniquity and will put away the wicked of the earth like waste. The prayer is for God to grant us understanding today that we must know what side of this we stand on. I'm not asking you today whether you believe in their, believe in God. I'm asking you, do you know Christ? And again, this is a Bible study at 10 o'clock. We all know Christ. Do you? Do you truly know Christ? I'm not asking you, do you know a church? I'm not asking you, do you even know God? I'm asking you, do you know the grace of Jesus Christ and his mercy? Do we understand that his mercy is wearing his robe of righteousness? Not my works, not my actions, not my deeds. His robe of righteousness. That's what gains us God's favor. Not being an Israelite, not being an American. Oh, may God help us with that last one. Being an American does not make you a Christian. Saying the Pledge of Allegiance under God does not make you a Christian. It is only when we fully understand who God is and His grace. For the sake of time this morning, let's go ahead and pray together this morning. I think this is important too. And I would ask you, I know this is Bible study, but I want you to, where you are, just privately pray for our understanding. Not someone else's understanding, but our own understanding of what has been spoken to us. Obviously, the Spirit has to give us the ability to discern it. But let's pray together. And then we'll end this time together. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we are confronted this morning with great truths that deeply wound us. They wound us because they speak to our very conscience. They speak to our conscience even as a believer because we are reminded about the goodness that has been extended and shown to us by God's grace, Lord, none of us are worthy and none of us deserve a single blessing from you. Yet in your, in your mercy and in your patience, you sent the Holy Spirit into us to open our eyes that so we might see the truth. It didn't hide who we are, it didn't hide what we thought, it didn't, it could, we couldn't hide a single deed, a single motive, a single attitude, and in spite of all of that, you opened our eyes to see the truth of the gospel and to see who we are. Lord, thank you for the gift of repentance, and Lord, that we were brought to a place to believe the truth. Lord, we are burdened, deeply burdened as believers today for a nation that continually seems to be running further and further away from the truth. Lord, although we can take comfort in knowing that all nations will one day find and be under the subject, subject hand of God's wrath, Lord, we don't rejoice in that. Lord, we rejoice in the reality that, Father, there is a place of deliverance. There is a person of deliverance. That deliverance is found in Christ Jesus. But Lord, we also cannot ask you to withdraw your hand of wrath. We understand your word gives us what will be for those who refuse to acknowledge Christ. Father, help us to have a right spirit and a right attitude about these things. May it not be something that leads us to be hate-filled. But may we love our brothers and sisters in the church even more. May we also have our eyes open to opportunities specifically to speak to people who do not know Christ. Father, we know that we are dependent upon you for all things, and we pray, Lord, that the word has been expounded properly today, and any misspeaking that I have done, Lord, let there be no misunderstandings, let the Holy Spirit make sure that the true word goes forth. Father, we thank you, we praise you, and it's in Christ's name I ask these things. Amen. All right. Well, thank you so much. Um, It's about 5 to 11. Uh, We'll go ahead and start at 11.15. Uh, If you'd like to take some time for some.